I'm Kelly Shan and this is my podcast Life Journey. I hope you find some inspiration and happiness for your own life in the words and experience from my guests. This episode is proudly brought to you by Interpath, the joint health experts. Foresight joint supplements keep your animal's joints in top shape and Interpath even has Osteo Restore for you. If you'd like to find out more, head to www.interpath.global or ask at your local vet. Kay Payton is one of Australia's foremost bronze sculptors and just happens to be one of my dearest friends. I wanted to share some of Kay's work with you and to find out exactly what it takes to make a bronze. I hope you enjoy finding out all about Kay Payton bronzes. I am with the very talented Kay Payton. Thank you, Kay, for joining me. And um, I'm keen for you to tell everybody um, all about your your craft and um, where you started. So you're a bushwoman. I've known you for a long time. You have an innate love of the bush and animals and everything it brings, and you're a wonderful cattlewoman and a very good horsewoman. Where does art fit into that? How did you become interested in art? Well, Kelly, I always enjoyed art when I was at school. It was my favourite subject. Um, I wasn't um, very creative, though, so I didn't exactly do well in my art um, as far as uh, ratings go, but I still enjoyed doing a lot of drawings. And when I left school, um, I just it just grew from there, I, I suppose, with the way direction my life went. Mm. So the bronze sculpting you discovered when you went to America on a scholarship. So tell me how that all played out. Yes, Cal, I was very fortunate to be accepted for an AFS scholarship to America and I was with a wonderful family um, who were also very artistic, uh, creative, a veterinary family, but my mother had multiple interests in stained glass and um, painting and was she enjoyed actually visiting museums and art functions and different. So we went to the Frederick Remington Museum, which was uh, just a wonderful thing, and that was the first time I'd actually seen any bronze work, the American Western art. So I was inspired by that. And I decided that when I came back to Australia, I would like to replicate that with the Australian outback life with our animals and our lifestyle so that it was a reflection of our history like the Americans had done with their Western history. So that was my passion, I suppose. That was my idea and that was the direction I wanted to go. So how do you start that? Like, where did you know where to, how to start or where to start? How did... Well, I didn't know where to start. I had no idea. But I was at school over there. I had a wonderful art teacher and he realised what I was trying to do and he got me started on sculpting in clay. Mm-hmm. So that was where I first started was sculpting in clay in America and they were fairly robust pieces. They weren't refined at all. But because of the medium I was working in, that's, that was how I had to produce them. Um, when I came back home to Australia, I made contact with Eddie Hackman because I found out that Eddie was doing the type of work that I was wanting to do. Um, but Eddie wasn't really available to me at that stage. He, um, 
he felt it was a closed industry. Um, so I had to really sort of explore it um, myself, really, the direction to go. Mm. Um, growing Acton played an integral part in getting me going as well, didn't he? In yeah. motivating yeah. you or yeah. putting you on in the direction. Yeah. So how did, tell me about how yeah. he helped. So Graham helped in more ways than one. It really did start and there were so many different openings with Graham in that I was um, secretary of the camp draft committee when they had the finals at Clark Creek and Eddie was producing all the trophies. Um, so I had a chance to befriend Eddie through having to organise the trophies and that opened the door a little. Um, Graham was actually president at that stage of that committee. So that's where Graham comes into this. And later on, he he would ask me to do trophies for his drafts. Um, at a stage when I didn't have a foundry, I had no way of casting. I could sculpt but couldn't produce. Um, and he would put deadlines on me that made me meet the time frame. So... I was forced into making a foundry. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, it was extremely, um, it, was, it was, the anxiety levels were extreme. I was given time frames of weeks to produce something and not having any idea how to do it. So, but we got there. <laughs> we worked because we were working at the time. I was working as a station cook. Um, Trevor was also my husband. He was also working full time. So we would work at night. So we, it was, uh, yeah, we had many, many late, late nights, not a lot of sleep for about two weeks to try and get this those projects done. But it, it um, was the beginning of giving me the confidence that I could do the whole the whole deal. Mm. I could I could start from the beginning to the end. During that time, you also had two little boys that you had to care for and look yeah. after. And, yeah. And those three men in your life, they're very demanding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were very good, actually. Yeah. The boys were, at that stage, they were doing primary school at Nebo, um, but they were very involved in sporting activities. Um, so we did have those commitments, but we we got we got through it. So then Graham's involvement was that he would keep throwing bigger and bigger projects at me, and I would always say, "I just can't do that, Graham." And he would always say, "You can do it, and you will do it." <laughs> so he really um, he supported me a great deal by giving me the opportunity. And later on, I learned that when there probably wasn't the support from the rest of the committee for me to do a particular project, he was backing me fully and he was shielding me from the, the anti-sentiment yeah. um, until the project was done. And thankfully, the project came off well. So the anti-sentiment disappeared, which was very nice. So how did the... How Having the fair, like having your own foundry, change things for you. Oh, immensely! It it gave me a lot more uh, stress in that 
I had to organise a lot. Uh, there was, there's, uh, there's so many stages in producing from, from the beginning to the end. Um, and I had to be on top of every stage and I had to know exactly what I was doing at each stage of the process because it was dangerous. You know, it, we were working with explosive materials and, um, and dangerous, I suppose, um, finishing tools and welding. I, had, I didn't know how to weld. Well, I know I'm... I'm an efficient TIG welder now, so I feel quite confident in those skills, um, even though it gave me those extra layers of stress. It also relieved me of having to find somebody else to do the work for me and knowing that they were going to do it to the same degree that I would have and the quality that I was after. Yeah. I know you have very, very high standards. Yes. <laughs> So, Kay, talk me through the process, so how how you start and then to the end result. So how does walk me yeah. through what you physically have to do to produce a bronze? Okay, so it starts with, with the idea. Somebody will come to me and they'll say they want it of a particular person or an animal, so they provide me with photographs um, it, it is wonderful if that person is still with us or animal and I'm able to get measurements of that particular animal because everyone is different. So we then um, work out ratios and, and bring it down to a miniature of that animal or that person. Um, it just depends on whether it's life size or whether it's smaller. So we just work a lot on ratios Um then I build an armature, which is the steel inside that particular model, depending on the size as to how strong that armature has to be. If it's a life-size piece, there's steel inside, then there's wire netting, and then I fill it with expander foam and I cut it back and allow enough room to do at least a centimetre to two centimetres of clay or plasticine over the top, and that's my original artwork. Then once that's complete, I do a rubber mould of that artwork with a fibreglass backing. If it's a large piece, those fibreglass sections have to be in sections. If it's a life-size piece, I can have 16 to 18 different sections. And that wax then is replicated. The piece that we're doing is hollow, so we've got to replicate hollow pieces. I then set it up with um, ceramic slurry or I set it up on pouring arms and sprues which is wax welded onto these different sections and then we go through the process of covering it with a slurry and this is built up over about a week to about a centimetre covering. Um, once that's dried out we burn the wax out in a kiln so that that becomes a hollow ceramic shell like a porcelain shell. Um, there's a little bit of finishing to do at this stage because I will have put release holes in those sections, so I have to fix those release holes before I pour that mould with molten metal. So on the day of casting, the metal ingots are melted up to 1,200 degrees Celsius. That molten metal is then poured into these different sections. Once they're cooled down, we cut the pouring arms off and the pouring cups, we 
finish the metal so that it's nice and smooth and then we weld those sections together, TIG weld them together with the same material that we've cast in and then um, it has to be made look so that there's absolutely no joins so it's polished back so that you can't see where the joins in those sections are and then we use a patination which is the colouring over the top and there's various ones. You can use acid or oil um, patinas um, to finish off and polish. And then it's a case of mounting that on whether it be a smaller timber base or a larger uh, plinth for a monumental bronze. So, Kate, on average, um, how long does it take you on an average sized piece mm. just to complete from start to finish? Um, I like to leave three to four months, especially uh, if I'm doing original artwork of a particular subject. Uh, I, I allow quite a bit of time in the formation of the art piece so that I get that animal or person correct. And um, you so you've been actually commissioned to do quite a number of, of large pieces and important pieces for Australian rural communities and um, beyond. What are some of those commissions that, that you've, you've had to do and, or that you've been, that you've completed? Well, Kelly, the first large piece that I did was for Long Reach Stockings Hall of Fame. It was a Santa Catrudis bull that is a third life-size. And that was at the same time I was commissioned to do a life-size drover of Snow Burgess, which is in the grounds of the museum in Nebo. So they were the first two large pieces. I was doing a lot of other life-size, like hats, and a lot of medium-sized trophies, many medium-sized trophies. And this gave me the confidence of being able to do the larger pieces because once you know the principles of the smaller pieces, the larger pieces are just a larger version of what you're already doing. So we had those two and then I have had um, the miner at Moorumbah in the memorial gardens out there and I am presently working on a cane cutter, a life-size cane cutter for the um, development group in the Pioneer Valley, which will be going near Day Mel Melba House. And um, I have had many other larger commissions, not necessarily large pieces, but big numbers of, and these were mainly for Beef Australia. I did their trophies for two consecutive beef expos. So we were looking at over 100 trophies, between 100 and 130 and 150 trophies. Um, so they were, they were a big project that took many months to get through. I have been in your studio and seen the hundreds of little green men that want to go to Beef Australia mm. and it's actually quite overwhelming. Mm. And is it easier to do a life-size piece than to work on hundreds of, of smaller definitely. pieces? Definitely, yeah. definitely. 
Um, I, I love the la- larger pieces. It's easier in that you don't have to worry about the smaller ratios yeah. and getting a particular subject to look like that person or that horse, but in a minute size, it's very hard to pick up the character of the animal or person when it's tiny. Um, but the larger pieces, I enjoy doing them because you can see it just growing before your eyes. So those life-size pieces, Kate, about approximately how much do they weigh? Because just a normal bronze is very heavy. So what would the life-size pieces weigh? Yes, Kel, uh, it, um, they're, mainly, they're usually around about 120 kgs, but I am presently working on getting them under 100 kilograms. It brings a little bit more risk into the casting process in that you're working with very thin shells and in the hot weather it's not good working with very thin wax even when it's inside a ceramic shell, it can still um, warp and, and distort. So having it thin and light is wonderful, but not so good when you're trying to get, um, when you're fighting the weather mm. and the conditions that we do in northern Queensland. Mm. So, um, Kay, just getting back to the cane cutter and, you know, those, those pieces like the one that you did at Norrabah, the minor, and they're such an important part of our history moving forward um, and to remember what's gone before us. So the cane cutter, for instance, is that, I'm sure it's not lost on you, the immense privilege it is to be able to do that for a community to portray the history that has Oh, definitely, definitely, Kelly. And I do like to have accuracy in the subject that I'm doing. I like them to have the clothing that they would have worn. Um, And, yeah, I I think it's really important to do that because your bronze piece is going to be there for heaven knows how long. It's going to be a long time. Hopefully, hopefully. Thanks, Kate. Thank you very Thank much you, for Kelly. all the work that you do. Thank you for your kind interview. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my interview. If you'd like to hear more from Life Journey, subscribe to our podcast and we'll let you know when we have new interviews coming up.